The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media, and technology, creatives, investors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Certainly companies like Apple are super scary because they don't really care about advertising. They don't care about movie theaters. Like They're just looking at how do they build the brand of Apple and build a services business on top of one of the world's most incredible computing platforms. Warner, Discovery, HBO Max, CNN, Disney, Pixar, ABC, ESPN, with Hulu, kind of. These media empires look formidable until you realize how tiny they are versus multi-trillion dollar mega platforms like Apple, Amazon, and Google, who are now spending big for original content. And streaming pioneer Netflix is going to have to spend even more just to keep up. Hollywood is in an era of serious disruption. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me from New York is Rich Greenfield, veteran media analyst. He's a partner and co-founder of Lightshed Ventures. He's a hybrid analyst, somewhat of an activist, as I've pointed out before in, in Business Week, and uh, even an investor right now in smaller media and technology startups. How are you, sir? Good. I mean, it's been a fairly volatile market environment over the last few months, but um, doing well. Well, I thought of you, what was it? Five years or so when Ma Bell, AT&T, decided it wanted to be the latest to make an honest bride out of Warner Media. We remember AOL Time Warner. I think you were at uh, Goldman Sachs back then when you were covering that mega merger at the turn of the century, which turned out to be a disaster for both sides. Why did AT&T think it had a shot at doing this? Or was it enough of a big platform that it was going to make sense? All AT&T wireless subscribers would have HBO Max and CNN and, and the world would just be easy that way? Well, look, I think lots of people want to be in the media and entertainment business. I mean, this goes back, remember Seagram's, uh, a, a liquor company buying Universal. And, you know, this is not a new thing. Sony buying into the media business years ago. I mean, we've seen lots of sort of outsiders try to be in this business. And I, look, I will say for AT&T's credit, the underlying concept of using a subscription business, a subscription content business to advantage their wireless platform does have logic, right? I mean, look at what Verizon has done with the Disney triple play. Now, they didn't go out and buy Disney. They just worked with Disney from a strategic partnership. Look at what T-Mobile has done with Netflix over the last few years. I mean, I think there is tremendous logic if you want to drive people to higher rate plans and wireless using content subscriptions or offering increased value. But I think what we've learned is you don't have to own the 
content platform. There doesn't appear to be a meaningful advantage to owning the content platform versus a strategic alliance. And I think that's probably, you know, where the mistake got made is that it, there wasn't enough synergy to warrant owning it versus just a business relationship. Here's the deal, though. Define platform. All right. I look at an Apple, which is worth nearly $3 trillion, more than all of these other legacy media companies combined, even successful media companies. Look at the size of a Facebook. Look at a Google. It seems like child's play for them to kind of spend several billions of dollars a year on premium content just to make their platforms, their apps stickier. It's kind of asymmetric warfare if you're a smaller player like a Viacom or, I don't know, uh, uh, Warner kind of spun back out of AT&T. You know, I've had this conversation with a lot of the CEOs in this space that, you know, I think very often we talk about sort of Disney competing against what was Warner Media now, Warner Bros. Discovery, or competing against what, you know, you said Viacom, now it's called Paramount, right? All of these companies sort of think of themselves as competing against each other. But there's a whole new group of competitors coming in. I mean, look, Amazon now controls the number two TV series on all of linear TV called Thursday Night Football, only on Amazon, oh, wow. right? The largest spend on a TV series, I believe, this calendar year is Lord of the Rings, only on Amazon Prime. If you think about Apple, right, think about the amount of content, not just winning the Academy Award for CODA, but if you haven't watched Severance or you haven't watched The Morning Show or you haven't watched, you know, Tehran, like the amount of content, Ted Lasso, I mean, look at the content piling up from these large platforms, these, you know, multi-trillion dollar platforms, as you just pointed out. It is a whole new class of competitors. And I think what's so scary for these legacy media companies is there is not the same focus on discrete profitability. Whether or not Apple TV Plus has the margin structure, like they're not looking at it like that. It's what does it do to the Apple brand? Like they don't want to lose money, but what does it mean to the Apple brand halo? What does it mean to the overall Amazon spend per customer when you're watching prime video content or prime video sports? It's a whole other lens that they're looking at the business. And that is very scary for legacy media companies who are actually trying to make a profit and show that they can actually create value on their streaming platforms in and of themselves. It's an entirely different level of warfare. And I fear many of them or most of them are not prepared for it. You know, it's funny you mentioned Amazon. I'm looking at the market capitalization there. It's $1.5 trillion right now. I'm reminded of a few years ago when Amazon paid, what was it, $14 billion in cash for Whole Foods. Nobody is scrutinizing that merger in terms of same-store sales or some of the other metrics that grocers and retailers have to deal with. And oh, by the way, another asterisk is Amazon has now bought MGM Studios, right? And everything else that kind of emanates out of it. And that was what, eight or $9 billion? Do I even remember the price? It's so gigantic. It's like comparing Jupiter to Mars, right? Well, I mean, look, Amazon just bought MGM, an eight, $9 billion acquisition. Any of the legacy media companies could have bought that, right? I mean, that could have been bought by Comcast, NBC. That could have been bought by Viacom or now called Paramount. Like lots of companies passed on that. I mean, MGM has been for sale for years. The fact that Amazon picks it up for what is effectively pocket change, and again, I don't think anyone cares what the P&L impact of that transaction is, who's investing in Amazon. And so 
there's just a whole different set of competition that is very scary. Doesn't affect the business today or tomorrow. But as you look out over the next couple of years, it's really scary. I mean, think about Apple. Apple has partnered with a company called Skydance. It's owned by David Ellison. David Ellison has gone out and recruited John Lasseter. You probably remember that name from the one of the co-founders of Pixar with Steve Jobs. John Lasseter is building a massive animation company for Skydance. It's called Skydance Animation. The first movie comes out this coming summer. They've got a thousand-person animation studio inside of Skydance being heavily basically financed by Apple with an output deal. This is a major kind of entry into the world of animation, just like Pixar's entry in was. Mm. And I don't think anyone's talking about it. And this is disruptive to Disney, potentially. This is disruptive to Warner Brothers. I mean, it's disruptive to the whole ecosystem. And it's not getting any attention right now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Rich Greenfield, veteran media analyst. He is both a co-founder and partner at Lightshed Partners, Lightshed Ventures. Uh, Rich and I crossed paths at Goldman Sachs, where I was working in the equities division. At the turn of the century, I was an avid consumer of your research, and <laughs> the clients loved it too. And back then, it was one, you know, Ma Bell was a whole different thing. It was AT&T legacy landline business well before kind of wireless kind of reached a tipping point. It had become the largest cable company in the country and took on an enormous amount of debt before that nearly bankrupted the company. And you know, Time Warner and AOL shacked up and everything. And it's it's fascinating to look at the musical chairs roughly 22, 23 years later. You know, the amount of rearranging of the deck chairs is sort of amazing in this space. Everyone is trying to figure out how they compete. And you're sort of ending up with the age old view of, you know, you need to be bigger, right? Consolidation. And, you know, if you think about when I started my career, Time Warner and Turner were separate companies in 1995 and Disney and ABC had not yet merged. And like there is now you're looking at it and, you know, to, to your point, Robin, like even the companies that have scale, the Comcast, the Disney's, even Warner Bros. Discovery, they're a tiny fraction. I mean, they almost look like pimples relative to Apple and Amazon and, and they don't have the balance sheets, right? I mean, many of these companies are levered and don't have they don't generate the type of cash that an Apple generates, you know, I mean, Apple generates more probably cash in a week than a lot of these companies do in a year. Like it's sort of just incredible the size well, and scale and to under to, under, to underscore that asymmetry, uh, a massive, a behemoth like AT&T, which was the old, what, Southwestern Bell, Pac Bell. I'm reading the October 2016 release when they were enthusing about the acquisition of, uh, back then it was called Time Warner. It became Warner Media. AT&T's then CEO said, Time Warner's leadership, creative talent, and content are second to none. Combine that with 100 million plus customers who subscribe to our TV, mobile, and broadband services, and you have something really special, he said. It's a great fit, and it creates immediate and long-term value for our shareholders. Well, uh, five and a half years later, how much shareholder value was destroyed by that so far? You know, look, it's hard to know because, you know, obviously there is the unknown of what would these companies have looked like? Like what would Time Warner have looked like if it hadn't have merged? And, you know, I would say AT&T did an incredible job of bringing in a management team. You know, Jason Kylar from Hulu really reinvigorated HBO growth. I mean, what HBO morphed into HBO Max. And I mean, this was a company that was stuck at, you know, 38 million subscribers or 35 million subscribers sort of forever. Like it just couldn't sort of get out of that sort of range. 
even with things like Game of Thrones and by broadening out the content from HBO to HBO Max, investing heavily, shortening the window from theatrical to getting movies far sooner on to HBO uh, and HBO Max, all of a sudden growth started accelerating pretty dramatically. And you now have a company that's approaching 50 million subscribers. And so- But what what is that? What is that growth? I mean, a quality subscriber, an HBO Max subscriber, whether that's a you know, discounted subscriber, a person buys a one-year, two-year thing versus the old traditional, you know, I'm signing up on Comcast Cable and I subscribe to HBO and Cinemax and that entire panoply of the pay TV channels. Well, I mean, from the standpoint of what does success look like? Is that the question or what does it mean? Yeah, subscribers for subscribers' sake. Are those profitable subscribers, right? If HBO Max and whatever the parent company is has to spend so much on incredible content, uh, euphoria, everything else to keep those subscribers. And these people are paying something like 15 to $18 a month. Is that a profitable proposition for them? Well, if you're comparing it to the legacy multi-channel ecosystem where, you know, it was hard to cancel, you couldn't really get rid of a bundle calling up to, you know, even to, if you wanted to go drop HBO probably meant calling up and having a multi-hour conversation waiting on hold for a cable company <laughs> right. versus now is point click cancel. And not to mention subscribing is point and click as well. And so it works both ways. But there's no doubt that the profitability of the new ecosystem at this point is very different. I mean, Disney Plus is still losing money, right? I mean, Netflix makes money, but they have massive scale. I mean, if you think about it, it took Netflix over 200 million subscribers and essentially two hours of watch time per day with $17 billion of annual content spend to get to free cash flow positive. So the investment now, look, there is tremendous cash flow opportunity over the next decade because as you start to sort of have leverage over your content spend, all of a sudden, and I think they have substantial pricing power as they've shown over the last few years. So the rewards or the fruits of that will start to come. But it's a long period of investment. And so when you're looking at, and I think one of the things Wall Street's worried about now is when you're looking at whether we're talking about Peacock, which is NBC Universal Comcast, whether we're talking about Disney Plus Hulu, whether we're talking about HBO Max, like Paramount with Paramount Plus, all of these things, Wall Street is worried that these businesses, you're taking really good cash flow from your legacy, but slowly dying multi-channel video business, cable and broadcast networks, and you're plowing it into streaming which is still operating at a loss, all with the hopes of being one of the companies that, like Netflix, can be at scale and have success. And we all know that not everyone is going to be successful in this world. There'll probably be two, three, four winners, but there aren't going to be seven or eight winners. And so I think that's why valuations have been under such pressure over the last few months is we've really started to shift from subs at any cost. Like people weren't even looking at ARPU. Like we've been banging the drum on ARPU. Like average, average revenue per user. Correct. And you know, the average revenue per user of a Disney Plus subscriber because of a lot of the very, very low prices they charge in markets like Asia, like the average revenue for Disney Plus was like $4.50. Very different than Netflix at $11. And yet people were just saying, oh my God, Disney has as many subs as Netflix. Or, you know, like within X amount of time, they got to this many subs versus Netflix. And it's like, wait a second, you can't just compare subs. Not all subs are the same, right? Like there is the revenue per subscriber and the profitability per subscriber, and they look completely different. So a sub is not a sub is not a sub. Well, Rich, how am I supposed to look at the uh, the, the the pipe owners, the cable companies? 
Um, I don't know if you consider wireless companies the pipe holders. At some point, you should become agnostic between your cable connection and a, a cheap 5G super broadband connection that lets you stream all these things over your iPads or or smartphones. But a Comcast is worth $215 billion right now. It does have NBC Universal, but should they be worried when all these people are cut, calling to cut the cord, right? Because how much of their existence and profitability is based on the full stack linear TV, 150 bucks a month, throw in HBO, throw in Disney Channel and these other things? Do they just want to be a dumb Wi-Fi company for people in their set-top you know, Apple TVs and Rokus? Uh, look, the history of these companies, right, is they came from purely video distributors. But if you look out now, it's all about broadband distribution, both wired and increasingly wireless. And I think the video business has really become fairly immaterial. I mean, no investor is buying Comcast because they like or don't like the video business. They're buying it because they love broadband and they believe that there's, you know, continued growth in broadband, you know, certainly less than there used to be. They're certainly concerned about the growing competition in broadband. I mean, you're seeing fiber investment from companies like AT&T and Verizon. But what about the straight up cord cutting? The fact that people are hell bent, like you're going to hike the price on me. I'm spending less time on linear TV. I have more options now. I can go to Amazon, for example, and see Thursday night football. Uh, Shouldn't that be an existential threat to the cable companies? Not really, because the cable companies make money on broadband. I mean, that's where their high profitability Mm. is. And so Mm. losing a subscriber, yes, do they make money on video subscribers still? They do. But there's a far higher margin on that broadband subscriber. And if you shift to, you know, YouTube TV or you start using Netflix and Amazon Prime Video far more, you probably are going to upgrade your broadband plan from the base plan to the higher speed plan. And that has substantial profitability attached to it versus the video business where margins are razor thin. I mean, think about it. Your cost keeps going up. You can't charge a lot more to the consumer. Like it is a really tough business with increasingly slim margins. I mean, you're seeing smaller cable companies basically exit the video business because there's no profitability. So that's not what's worrying Comcast investors. Comcast investors have one major worry, which is the broadband business, which was sort of all, you know, they, they, a few years ago, Comcast started calling themselves a connectivity company and not, you know, they, they were no longer sort of a video distributor the way I think people thought of them in the past. As a connectivity company, obviously, all that matters is the growth in your broadband. And I think investors right now are worried that both wired competition from AT&T and Verizon, as well as increasingly wireless broadband, you know, things that you're starting to see like 5G at home from Verizon and you're seeing T-Mobile do it as well. That's what's really starting to worry cable investors is that the, the safety and security of broadband doesn't look as safe and secure as it used to. When we look at this new uh, newly formed Warner Brothers discovery, you know, AT&T shed uh, Warner Brothers after what, five, five and a half years of uh-huh. a bad experience. It had to cut its dividend and now it's shacked up with David Zaslav's uh, Discovery Communications. So the portfolio together has uh, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, CNN Plus, and cable channels like TBS, TNT, TLC, True TV, Animal Planet, Cartoon Network, and more. And I wonder, is that big enough to compete with a Netflix? You clocked it at, what, a $17 billion annual content spend. And then these guys are independent and public as well and are suddenly facing cost-cutting pressures as a newly public company. I mean, look, there is certainly a lot of debt at the new Warner Brothers Discovery that is going to take some time to work down and to give them more flexibility. 
I think the good news is, is they have an incredible creative team. If you look at sort of the HBO team, um, and even a lot of the stuff that's been recently coming out of Warner Brothers as they sort of breathe new life into things like DC Comics. If you saw the recent The Batman, there is a lot of great content that will help. But Robin, you're right. I mean, there's no doubt that in order to compete in this new world, it's going to take a very aggressive management team. And I, I think that's probably why you see things like Discovery Plus and CNN Plus. You're going to see it all rolled into the current HBO Max, you know, running multiple services doesn't make a lot of sense. And I do think that breadth of content, completely different types of content, you know, the CNN plus content is totally different than what's on Discovery Plus or what's on HBO Max today. And so broadening out the content, giving a whole family more to do, more reasons to use you every single day. My fundamental way of looking at this sector is it's a war for time, time and attention. You know, if you're sitting there in David Zaslav's shoes, it's how can I capture as much time, media entertainment time, every single day as possible? It's that war for time and attention that should be literally the focus of every one of these executives. It's not about just having enough because I think in, in the world we're in, each company is trying to make it so you never leave. Amazon never wants you leaving their ecosystem. Netflix never wants you leaving. No different than TikTok and Facebook, all of these companies, they want to keep you and keep you for as long as possible. And so that war for time and attention has got to be what everybody optimizes for, even if they don't know it yet. Is CNN a distraction for them? We know it kind of was in that the Trump administration opposed this merger and didn't want to give it. It probably would have done a favor for AT&T if Justice Department did scuttle that merger. But um, where does it kind of fit in? We do see that the CNN Plus streaming offering, the separate offering at what, $5.99 a month or $60 annually outside of HBO Max has kind of had lackluster numbers initially. I think CNBC reported that fewer than 10,000 people are using it two weeks into its launch. I mean, look, I don't know the numbers because I mean, I've seen what's reported as well. I, I do think that trying to run separate streaming services, you know, we've been a, a vocal critic of the Hulu, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus situation, like multiple logins, multiple services, multiple tech stacks, like just does not make sense. There is no reason, you know, it, it, whether Disney sells Hulu or buys Hulu, like they need to make a decision. I think we probably prefer them selling it, but either way, consolidating and having one go to market that gives you everything. And I think now bringing this over to Warner Bros. Discovery, running multiple services just doesn't seem to have a lot of logic. And I don't really believe that CNN Plus can be a standalone service, meaning can it generate enough subscribers at a high enough ARPU to cover its cost base and really be additive versus would it be far better as, hey, now we have these fascinating documentaries and original content pieces on HBO Max that further broadens, gives more people a reason to come in and touch and feel that HBO Max and why every could, day. And why couldn't you then just pad the price of HBO Max? I don't want to get too inside baseball with you, but I would think of something well, like even, the late Anthony Bourdain's body of work. I don't even think you have to raise the price. I think what you you know you need to do is think about how you – Increase the value to the consumer because remember, the two big problems these services have are customer acquisition and churn. If you can figure out a way to bring on more subscribers at a lower price, 
meaning lower marketing costs. I don't mean lower retail price of what you spend. But if you can figure out a way to bring more people in the door, and maybe it's Anthony Bourdain content, maybe it's an interview series from Brian Stelter, whatever it is, and then you can figure out a way to help them not churn, meaning not leave because it's so easy to click cancel. So if you can do that, you don't even need to lower the or raise the price of the core service. Lowering churn and bringing people in from a lower marketing cost, that is going to have far bigger benefits than raising the price. And so I don't think this is a pricing issue. I think this is how do you actually increase what is already there, make it a better service, more attractive, stickier. That's what's really going to be powerful. And I think that's, you know, I would not be surprised to see CNN Plus integrated into um, HBO Max at no additional cost. Full disclosure, please stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio partners, Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ, WVTF, across the Great Commonwealth. We are on WERA in Arlington and much of D.C. We are down on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. Out west, I see KPQQ in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Rich Greenfield. He's partner and tech and media analyst at Lightshed Partners. He's also a general partner at Lightshed Ventures, which makes investments. You know, you mentioned something in passing earlier, Hulu, Disney. I mean, my kids want the Disney Plus login and you have all that Star Wars depth and everything and the Mandalorian. And, you know, part of me wants to go back and see an ABC series and part of me wants to see ESPN documentaries. And under Disney's banner, because it controls all three, right? Hulu, ESPN, and Disney. I have to buy three separate logins. They've so far not done a kind of a gigantic killer app and, and turned around and said, here, Farzad, pay us $40 a month. Yeah, I mean, look, they you know they do sell it as a triple play, but they don't make it as one easy-to-use service. And they're starting to do that overseas. You know, They've integrated a lot of what is Hulu content here is on a service called Star, which is a tile inside of Disney Plus overseas. And so they're toying around with it. I mean, I think the the elephant in the room is that they don't own 100% of Hulu and Comcast still owns one third. There's a kind of option to buy out Comcast in 2024, but obviously that's still a couple of years away and sounds pretty suboptimal. And so the question really is, Disney needs to figure out, is it buying or selling Hulu so that it can figure out how to sooner than later create basically express its vision for streaming. Is it broader than just Disney content? Meaning, does it have the Hulu content? Like things like The Dropout, which is the Elizabeth Holmes documentary. Like, should that be on Disney Plus or does Disney Plus just want to be Marvel and Lucasfilms and Pixar and, you know, family content? My guess is Disney does see the opportunity to be something much broader. The question is, do they need Hulu to accomplish that? Or can Disney Plus really, with the proper parental controls, can Disney Plus basically be something for everyone? And I think Disney's leaning towards something for everyone, but we'll see. I think that's a really huge strategic decision we're waiting to see Disney CEO Bob Chapek make over the coming few months. What is Hulu? I mean, it's kind of a Frankensteinian thing. I've lost track of of you know the, the shareholders and the, the timetable for partners and everything. I faintly know that I can catch ABC series and other things on it. And that's actually one of the frustrations, Rich, I hear from listeners and other, other kind of streaming fanboys is this kind of login fatigue, right? If I'm interested in seeing 
the story of Theranos and everything. I have to go get another login. I have to go to another service. Sometimes there's a great thing on BBC America, and somebody else might be covering that. Or Schitt's Creek uh, is 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 somewhere and is co-opted by Netflix. It's just it's just too much. And at some point, if you wonder that if if the linear cable bill was kind of doing me a favor. I mean, look, finding content. I mean, is is certainly not easy. But I want to go back to your Hulu question. I mean. Hulu at its core, right? Like what, when Hulu started, it was last night's television. It was basically a way to catch up on last night's television. It was actually free with advertising on your computer. There was no paid Hulu originally. They morphed and built a paid version, which enabled you access on TVs and other devices. But then they went into, hey, let's do originals and build into an originals business. And I think today there's sort of in this, I guess the best word is this quasi no person's land. Like what exactly is this like is it the nbc content is going away i think amc just pulled a bunch of its content off it's not clear you know abc is shifting more and more of its content over to disney plus versus to hulu i mean dancing with the stars just came off of abc prime time and is going exclusively to disney plus and so you, you sort of look and go okay so what exactly is hulu like are they do they have enough original programming they have some really good things that they've come out with over the last few years but they need a lot more content if they're going to stand on their own and be a standalone service. And I would agree with you. I don't think there's a great image of what Hulu is in the consumer's mind. And so that's why, to me, I would sell Hulu. But if I buy it, I certainly integrate it into Disney Plus and, and make it sort of the adult domestic brand inside of Disney Plus. Are there any other wild cards in this? I didn't even mention Verizon, which is a wireless juggernaut. And it had kind of these hesitating forays into you know, bought Yahoo, AOL, HuffPo, divested some of that stuff. Yahoo Finance, I think, is technically still owned by Verizon, but it didn't make a full kind of whole hog media empire acquisition the way an AT&T did. I think Verizon's been pretty clear that they're not, you know, I think, you know, my, my partner, Walt Pysik, covers Verizon and AT&T. And I don't think that you're going to see Verizon enter the media space. I think they're pretty clear that Hans has been cleaning up a lot of the media stuff they did before. I mean, look, they just exited their NFL deal early for mobile. I, I don't think Verizon wants to be a media company. I think they want to work with media companies. I mean, they've worked with, you know, Disney, obviously, very nicely. They've worked with Discovery. I, you know, they work with Apple and, you know, many content, you know, companies or platforms out there. But I, I definitely don't see them as a, a major player. I think the the real, if you're sitting there as a CEO of a legacy media company, you're not worried about Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile. You're worried about one thing, or you should be worried about one thing, that these multi-trillion dollar platforms, two of them that control operating systems, meaning Apple with iOS and Google with Android, you're worried that these companies are so powerful and have such breadth and depth of balance sheet that as they want to be in the media space more, they're going to take more and more time away. And, you know, certainly companies like Apple are super scary because they don't really care about advertising. They don't care about movie theaters. Like they're just looking at how do they build the brand of Apple and build a services business on top of one of the world's most incredible computing platforms. And when I read that analysis, I think somebody should coin the phrase too big to care. And if that's something that antitrust should uh, try to get its hands around, that these companies are so big. They're so massive that these kind of bolt-on things that would make life very difficult for pure play media companies don't really affect the economics or the income statement or the balance sheet of these gigantic 
uh, uh, juggernauts. Do you think that they're going to run afoul of Washington, D.C. at some point? You know, it's, it's sort of hard to understand the consumer harm, right? I mean, so Amazon buys MGM and they're offering you access to Thursday Night Football at no extra cost if you're a prime two-day shipping subscriber. You get access to Lord of the Rings and, you know, you get thousands and thousands of pieces of content at no extra cost just by being an Amazon Prime two-day shipping subscriber, which costs all of $100 a year. I mean, cable television, video cable television costs $100 a month uh, for lots of channels you don't want even to watch. And so, right. you know, well, what I, I guess what I'm getting at is these are pretty consumer-friendly companies, right? I mean, Apple TV Plus at $5.99, and now you get Friday Night Baseball, and you get Ted Lasso, and you get Severance, and you get Morning Show. I mean, you're getting a lot for a very low price. And so, you know, look, the government may try. I think the government's probably got other aspects of these companies that they're far more worried about than their entrance into the entertainment business. Because at the end of the day, what the, what the sort of overall ethos seems to be currently is let's make this stuff available to the consumer at a dramatically lower cost than it was before. Let's make it easier to access this content. And so right now it feels very disruptive and problematic for legacy media companies not so much from an antitrust standpoint. You know, I've provided the way my mind works metaphorically sometimes is some of these legacy arena rock bands from the 70s and 80s, like Styx, Kansas, all of them joined together and kind of barnstormed the country. Is there going to be a possibility that the ones kind of left out of it here? I can't believe I'm saying kind of Comcast, Peacock, Paramount, some of the other kind of smaller cable players that they shack up either actually in a mega merger that somebody concocts or uh, virtually through some sort of partnership to have an app that truly can compete. Because again, it is asymmetric. Wherefore, when you point out the amount of money that a platform like an Apple can throw at content every year, just it, it just eclipses anything that a gigantic media conglomerate that would have been scary a couple of years ago could have done. Yeah. I mean, I, you're not going to hear any arguments out of me. You know, I think we're these big tech companies, I think, are just getting started and they, they are, they're starting with entertainment programming. Many of them started by, you know, essentially licensing other people's content. They're now starting to make some of their own content. They're starting to actually license sports rights. Like they're just really get, you know, it's, it's been going on for a while, but I think in terms of the size and scale, this is a pretty transformative year. I mean, I think this is the first year you really see Apple where there's always something new and fresh to watch on Apple TV Plus. This is, you know, essentially year, you know, you're going into year three for Apple TV Plus and it feels meaningfully bigger now than it did a couple of years ago. And clearly Amazon, which has been around for a while doing video, but doing Thursday night football and being the broadcaster, meaning they're hiring the broadcasters. They're not simulcasting. This is actually an Amazon produced, uh, you know, wow. telecast. This is a big deal. I mean, I really feel like this is that watershed moment or year for the, the media business because you're finally seeing big tech play a big role in, in the programming or, or distribution of content. Here's a wild card for you. Uh, virtual reality. Like I, especially during the pandemic, I really pine to attend uh, a Lakers game remotely or a Dodgers game or to see the, my Miami Hurricanes or the Dolphins. Um, the technology is there. Why aren't the sports franchises stepping up and saying, we can vastly increase 
our rents. We don't have to worry about linear TV, even though live sports is kind of holding together the cable package. We could go direct to customer, MLB or NFL or anybody, and you you could you can watch the stuff courtside anywhere you are in the world, and we could charge you a lot. Yeah, I, I look. I think there's still something about being there in person. I think, you know, if you look at what's going on right now in the live entertainment business, Live Nation's business is literally exploding, like cannot control the demand for concerts. Mm. I was just down in Disney World a couple of weeks ago for a Disney analyst meeting. The crowds are just incredible. I mean, you have basically no international tourism. And the crowds are bonkers. The airports are besieged. There is so much demand after two years kind of virtually interacting. Everybody wants to do things in person. And I think that's part of the the challenge with virtual reality. You know, can it make a Zoom meeting more intimate? Sure. But wearing sort of heavy goggles that give you a headache or become tiring on the eyes, <laughs> is it better enough relative to current camera technology. And I think, yeah, will there be some use cases? I mean, can I imagine trying to buy an apartment and wanting to sort of virtually see it versus having to go to it? Um, does that is that really interesting if you could kind of walk through the apartment and really feel and understand what you were in? But sort of to host a meeting with your colleagues and you all put on headsets so that you can meet virtually in a virtual conference room, you know, maybe there's some use case for that that is, that is interesting in certain industries. But on the flip side, like, do I think that instead of going out with my friends, we're going to go watch a virtual concert and all put on virtual reality headsets? <laughs> I, I just have a hard time believing that that's what's going to replace sort of inhuman inter interaction. Well, close us out, Rich. Uh, this does seem to be a, a, a critical moment. I mean, the pandemic forced us. It shut down movie theaters, theme parks. It accelerated the launch of Disney Plus and you know HBO Max butting heads with Hollywood stars and the theatrical release and uh, paying them to make them whole. Uh, what are what are some quick predictions that we're going to see out of this year and next? Yeah, I mean, look, there's no doubt that you hit the accelerator on this whole industry uh, on the seismic change that was it was already happening. Look, cord cutting is clearly going to accelerate. There is, I mean, if I ask a group of people to name shows on broadcast television. They may name The Bachelor. They may name This Is Us, but like This Is Us is ending. The Bachelor like ratings are you know a fraction of what they were. But if you try to name a new show that people are watching over the last four or five years, you can't name any. Like people are just not watching linear TV outside of certain live sports, and it's mostly football related live sports. And so, I, I think in that context, it's hard not to believe that the pace of cord cutting starts to accelerate to new levels we haven't seen. Especially because, Robin, as we were talking about earlier, the big cable companies don't really care about video anymore. And so they're just raising price to offset costs. Like they don't have the same view of retaining subscribers they used to. If they can drive broadband, that's all they care about. They don't care if they lose an extra 100,000 video subscribers anymore. And so that's very problematic for the legacy media industry that still makes a lot of its money off of broadcast and cable TV subscribers. And so I think that is certainly a theme you're going to see. The other thing I think you're going to see is I think TikTok is going to have a bigger and bigger role to play in television. We've already seen the explosion of YouTube on the television where 30, 40% of time spent with YouTube is now on the big screen. I think TikTok is going to follow that. And I think you're going to see more and more TikTok usage happening on the television as you, as you approach year end 2022. 
We were joined by Rich Greenfield, veteran media analyst at Lightshed Ventures, also an investor. Uh, I, I'm fascinated, sir, in that you avail yourself of Twitter. You've been activist with respect. I remember the Dolan family and Cablevision in New York. Not your not your father's uh, sell-side <laughs> analyst, I've always said. And so you've always kept it interesting. Please, please feel free to join us anytime you'd like. And uh, you can follow me and follow along on Twitter at Rich Lightshed anytime you want. We'd love to have more followers. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And please get in touch to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we're discussing the intensifying disruption of Hollywood, which used to rely on big rents from the box office and the cable dial. This is something I discussed exactly eight years ago on the very first episode of Full Disclosure with filmmakers Alfred Spellman and Billy Corbin of Miami documentary shop Tour, Let's revisit that talk. So go back to Sundance 2001. I know we're going fast forward, rewind. I mean, all these big shops and established directors suddenly reach out to you. Your story makes the cover. Was it the New York Post? We were editing on the first version ever of Final Cut Pro. First version ever. It was crazy. You could like hear the hamster running in the, uh, you know, running on the wheel. Um, it was pretty traumatizing experience uh, working with a with, with any first generation Apple product. I think to this day, but uh, even more so back then in 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 two thousand. Um, and I'll never forget as long as I live. We were editing. Uh, Sundance likes to have the master delivered to print trafficking at minimum two weeks before your premiere. So we were about five or six days, and we and we still hadn't delivered the master because I was still editing the movie and. Al Alfred said what I think is the all-time kind of seminal line about nonlinear editing in the digital age. He goes, you can continue editing when we get back from Sundance if you want to finish the movie. He said, you, you don't have to finish. You just have to stop. And if you think about it, every director has done that. I mean, George Lucas has gone back to Star Wars, of course. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola has gone back to Apocalypse Now, Redux. So that's, that's sort of become the spirit of this era is like, we don't have to finish, but we have to stop. So we finally stopped. And I didn't have a parka or boots or anything. We grew up in Miami. So when people are like, oh, are you going to ski? I'm like, water ski? I didn't know anything <laughs> about like snow skiing. Um, I was scared of trees, I think. Um, How old were you guys in, in 2022? You were 22. And we got to Sundance. And, you know, at this point, the independent film boom of the 90s had crested, although I don't think we were aware of that necessarily at the time. <laughs> uh, you know, Sundance had obviously uh, become a, a hugely influential film festival because of the success of Steven Soderbergh and Quentin Tarantino. And it became kind of a, you know, it's, it's a Monte Carlo. You go there and, you know, you could uh, walk out uh, being, uh, you know, uh, with, with millions of dollars, according to, the, to, to the, the news reports. And so we had gone to Sundance and really, I think it was the last gasp of the independent film boom that began in the 90s, looking back now. Um, because what we realized is that, you know, the audience for our films at that point were not the ticket buyers or the DVD purchasers. They were the six to eight acquisitions executives that work for the distribution companies. And so those were the only people whose opinion mattered at that point, because those were the people that were going to decide whether the rest of the country was going to get to see your film or not. And all due respect to them, what the hell did they know? I mean, you know, Hollywood and New York is they're kind of these idea vacuums. How else to explain in our lifetimes? There's been uh, two volcano movies, two Robin Hood movies, two Truman Capote movies, two asteroid hurtling towards the 
Heigl keeps getting film deals. Two Christopher Columbus movies. Well, not anymore. But like right. the idea that, and in fact, just last year, there was two White House under siege movies that came out within months of each other. You know, s- someone uh, puts green lights, a movie about volcanoes, and another studio across town goes, hey, wait, don't we have a script that's on the shelf about a volcano? Volcanoes are hot now. But nobody asks the audience if they're interested in volcanoes or Truman Capote or Robin Hood or Christopher Columbus. They just, it's this idea vacuum. So we living in Miami thought that we had a better perspective on what just normal people, what what the audience uh, is interested in. And, and, and it was sort of disturbing to go to Sundance and realize that like, oh, we're not talking about the audience. We're talking about just a, a gaggle of executives that that are the gatekeepers for the audience. So when we met in in 2007, I believe it was 2008, Cocaine Cowboys, your real uh, signature documentary, which is on Endless Loop now on CNBC. I mean, you <laughs> talk about it all the time. Um, it, it is really kind of the, the demystification of the Miami Vice era. Um, and you've defined the genre all really your own. And now it's uh, the third is, is being prepared, I understand. Um, you were really wizened and almost cynical to the ways of the big motion picture companies. Well, what had you happened? You said that, to... listen, we are, we, are, we are cheaper and more independent than ever. I remember your late dog, Alfred, you, you kept her in the credits in the film because you were, you know, you didn't have enough names <laughs> to put on the credits. <laughs> well, what, what had happened at the time is we had come back from Sundance and, um, you know, everybody was asking us, are you guys going to go to New York or to L.A.? And, you know, the agents were calling and the studios were calling. And we said we wanted to go back to Miami and tell stories from our hometown in the way that, you know, Woody Allen or Spike Lee became so associated with New York or Barry Levinson in Baltimore or Robert Rodriguez in Austin, Texas. And there were these and great— And John Waters in Baltimore. And John Waters in Baltimore, too. That's true. <laughs> and there were these great stories from Miami that nobody was telling. We were basically a town that was be exploited for our beautiful locations. The studios would come and film these, you know, uh, bad boys and film these huge, you know, movies and then leave. And so we thought that we wanted to tell stories from Miami. And and the story that kind of defined our childhood growing up in Miami was the story of the cocaine cowboys, of of how the cocaine industry uh, built modern Miami. And so we set about trying to make a documentary based on that theory. And this was right around the time when Grand Theft Auto Vice City was the biggest selling video game of all time. Uh, you know, it only takes one episode of Cribs for you to realize that Tony Montana has become an icon to sure. a whole new generation uh, of, of, uh, of, of young people. And, um, and Michael Mann was preparing the Miami Vice feature film. So it seems like nostalgia runs in these 25, 30-year cycles. And so we thought, okay, it's, it's time to look back at the 80s. Now, don't get us wrong. As you said, we had been on the cover of the New York Post out of, out of Sundance. We had a, a tremendous uh, press kit uh, at the time. And so we made the rounds and attempted to pitch the movie and get it financed uh, through industry uh, financing and through through uh, you know established independent distribution companies and nobody got it but nobody here's was the interesting thing I mean having seen uh, Napster and the disruption there and after that you know um, I don't know Limewire BitTorrent everything else that followed um, and this is even kind of pre the the full YouTube era you guys were really comfortable with um, uh, DVD burns of Cocaine Cowboys being distributed on the street in Miami. I just remember feeling, that's very strange. Like, where are you making your money? Well, it goes to that point. Nobody in the industry understood the pitch. We, we had a pretty solid, in fact, we look back at the treatment that we wrote to this day. It's pretty consistent with what the, the final product of Cocaine Cowboys was. It had a different name then. It was called City Made of Snow, uh, but which I thought was a pretty cool title. Not as marketable as Cocaine Cowboys, perhaps, but we still had this really solid concept that we thought that there was, uh, there was a market for, but nobody in the industry understood it. And so when the movie came out, um, 
the audience, it was a different era. It no longer was just the era of the film festival and the acquisitions people and the ex- and the. Yeah, but didn't you want to have your big movie theater release and your parents seeing you on the red carpet? And well, it's very funny. So Perez Hilton there or something? I don't know. Cocaine Cowboys <laughs> did open in theaters in October of 2006. And I'll never forget the weekend that it opened. We opened in 15 markets across the country. And in Miami, the weekend that it opened in October... Uh, the weather all weekend was 72 degrees and bright sunshine. And I'm looking at the theater receipts. I'm standing outside the theater and I realize nobody's going to come to the theater this weekend. The weather's gorgeous. And having worked for two or three years on a movie to, for, for, for that, you know, for the man upstairs to decide what the weather's going to be like this weekend. And that's going to determine whether or not you're going to get held over for another week in the theater. It was too much. It was a crapshoot. I remember Alfred saying, he's like, this business model is preposterous. He's preposterous, especially because about how many months before October of 2006? About three or It was the months. summer. Yeah, it was the summer of 2006. So this is months ahead of our scheduled theatrical release for which we are jumping through hoops. We are transferring our video to film. This is like this really complex and extremely expensive uh, process. Uh, a guy who worked for us goes to get his hair cut in uh, a city called Miami Gardens in South Florida. And he's at this storefront barbershop that's kind of long. And on either end of the barbershop, they have televisions mounted on the ceiling. And he's getting his hair cut. And what are they watching? Cocaine Cowboys on DVD on an endless loop in this barbershop. <laughs> and this is months before the theatrical right. release of the movie. We had premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and that was it as far as like, there was like three screenings at, at Tribeca where we had world premiered. And so he said, where did you get this? They go, oh, we got this a couple weeks ago. We come in in the morning first thing, we hit play on the DVD player and we just watch it. On a, they knew the movie by heart. They had their favorite characters, their favorite lines. They said, we got it at the flea. What's the flea? It's the Carroll Mart, the Carroll City Flea Market up the street. So he goes there and discovers the two guys at the bootleg table and they estimated at that point made sold they couldn't even they couldn't even count that high it was 5 10,000 units they had moved to date and it was so popular that they were selling a DVD uh, you know these these are DVDRs the silver DVDRs with sharpie you know, written on him with the title. They had they were selling Cocaine Cowboys 2. What was that? It was an MSNBC documentary about killing Pablo Escobar oh, that they geez. had done. So, so Cocaine Cowboys had become such a hot title at the flea market that they were repackaging other products as sequels or spinoffs of Cocaine Cowboys. And you have to remember, I mean, this is the mid the mid zeros, and the hip hop business had taught us a lot about distribution because the mixtape circuit in the in the hip hop industry is where artists get their start. Free tapes that are distributed on the street streets and, and, and uh, you know, and at, at barbershops and flea markets. And what we learned was, as I think somebody had told us, he said, you know, we don't bootleg garbage. You know, we bootleg things that people like and want to see. And so it's kind of the ultimate badge of honor if you are heavily bootlegged. And so we realized that that in the same way that, that hip hop built, the uh, careers were built on the back of this mixtape circuit, uh, you know, 50 Cent is, is, is probably the, the most popular example, um, that that's how kind of the cocaine cowboys phenomenon began and, and really turned it into a cult classic. And, and I say the measure of a successful filmmaker, it's not box office, it's not critical acclaim, it's do you get to work again? Uh, because gone are the days of the one-hit wonders. You know, you don't get paid off one song or one movie anymore. You got to keep working. It's all about what have you done for me lately? What's the latest product? So we thought that if we could build a reputation uh, around this movie, that that would help us generate more opportunities to continue to work. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF 
Radio IQ, W-E-R-A-W-P-V-M, and KPPQ. And again, please message me to run full disclosure on your air. I am Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.